On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. In late February 2008, three children, Jewel, Michael, and Innocent, were brutally murdered in their home. According to news reports, their mother was responsible for the brutal killings. This is a horrible situation. However, when we hear about these stories, we hear about the crime, we hear about the criminal investigation, we hear about the prosecution, and if we follow the story long enough, we hear about the sentencing. But the pieces not talked about happens very early on. A medic entered this home and found the children. That same medic evaluated the children for any signs of life and then had to determine if life-saving efforts would be futile. My friend Rob was that medic, and this is his story. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one-up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public, or as I like to call them, stories from the road. Welcome back to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein. This morning, I'm joined by police medic Rob. In the agency where Rob works, EMS is handled by the police department, which is unique. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later in the podcast. For now, welcome to the show, Rob. Good morning, Phil. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Rob, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about how you got into the fire service? My uh, my family was involved in uh, the fire service and I guess more so the fire service because it was early before the EMS really established itself. Um, growing up around, my grandfather was uh, an assistant chief of East Meadow. Um, he was also a commissioner. I just found out recently. I didn't know that. But he was an assistant chief for that fire department. My father was a, uh, is a member, ex-chief for my current fire department. Uh, my brother was a member, 
you know, and they were both uh, EMT CCs or back in the day, it was uh, an AEMT or advanced medical technician. Yeah. And that, that term's kind of come back now full circle. We're, we're putting out advanced EMTs. Yeah. They, 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 we have EMTs. Now we have EMT. I, uh, they brought back the AEMT. They're getting rid of the A, uh, excuse me, the EMT CC in New York state, which was emergency medical technician, critical care. One of the agencies has come up with a, um, a bridge course to bridge yourself up to the paramedic level only in New York state. So a lot of us are engaged in that course right now. It's, I believe we're the third, there's a, this is the third or fourth class running now that is bridging over. I, I think it's the third. So, so with this history that you have, tell me uh, or tell the listeners how you how you ended up getting into this this field. I mean, obviously it was a family family tradition. Was there any other factors that brought you into uh, EMS and the fire service? Well, I, I joined the fire service when I was seventeen, still in high school, um, because my father and my brother were both medics, and and you know my fire department primarily runs EMS. Uh, you know, we do some fire work, but not, not a lot. Um, so it was just the need to help, to help people, help my community. And I, I just enjoyed it. I became an EMT. And then shortly after that, I moved up to EMTCC. And then um, I really had no, <laughs> I had no direction, really. Uh, I was actually preparing myself to maybe enter the uh, military service. I took the FDNY test and then I applied for um, this, this job. And ironically, I received a letter after, ta- after taking the FDNY test, I received a letter to go back for the physical. And then I received a letter that I was accepted to my current job. And well, that's the direction I took. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're here. And you, how many years of service do you have now? Is it 20? I think you said 28. Is that right? Yeah, 28 years. Uh, currently, I'm assigned to uh, the Westbury area for the past 19 years. Rob, the agency you work for has a very different EMS model than people may be used to seeing in other areas of the country. And I wonder if you could take a minute and share some of those differences with the listeners. It's very, as you know, it's very unique. You know, we're, we're by ourselves in the ambulance. Um, generally, we get assigned to an, uh, a call over the radio. They send two, two police officers and, and an ambulance. That's, that's generally. If it's a double man car, then they, they only send one car because there's two people there. And then based on the nature, you know, that, that can escalate, you know, usually if it sounds like it's more than what, or, or could be, could require more resources, people will jump up and start responding. Maybe the joining ambulance would respond, you know, depending on where they are. We have patrol supervisors that would, um, uh, you know, they're out on the street now. There's more of them than we had, you know, back then when this happened. So they're, they're usually out and about. And uh, if they hear it, then they'll they'll jump on it too. But generally, it's you know uh, one medic and two police officers. Yeah, and that's a unique situation. Typically, you have a medic and an EMT, or two medics in an ambulance. So when you think about working your way through a call, you're, you're for the most part you're on your own because the police officers that are showing up, and I'm speaking generally, are EMTs, not trained to the same level as a paramedic or, in your case, a EMT critical care would be trained to. Correct? Yeah, and and even now, you know, when when we first got on the police officers coming out of the academy, they were certified EMTs. There's been some debate going back and forth over the years. And uh, now they, they still get medical training, but they're not certified to that level anymore. 
So they, they do get medical training in the academy. They go up there for a few weeks. They come out and ride a day with us, you know, just to get acclimated to, um, to the street and how we function and our equipment. But that's, that's really how it works. You know, they're, they're like our front line. You know, they carry AEDs. Uh, in today's climate, they carry Narcan. Um, so they're really like the, the initial responders. And then we get there and pick up where they left off. So a little different than when I was on the job. Yeah, we got narcotics now. We do twelve lead EKG. We've we've got a lot of lot more advancements. You know, we went from the uh, the van that we had to uh, modular ambulances. Yeah, it's, uh, it's things have escalated since uh, or prog- uh, not greatly progressed, but some things have progressed and some things haven't. <laughs> you know, I know this is a relatively difficult story to share, but let's jump into it. Um, thinking back to that day, tell me some of the things that stood out to you. Uh, it was it was February. It was cold. A little bit of snow on the ground. Um, it was sunny, uh, from what I can recall. Really, wasn't anything out of that ordinary for the the way the day was starting. I was just in my regular routine. Had you uh, had you run calls at this particular residence before, or was this a new uh, a new new call for you? Not, yeah, not not that particular residence. The area certainly, but not not that particular residence. So, so tell me a little bit about the area. Tell me about the typical calls you would run in this area. Uh, it's it's a hamlet, uh, so it's smaller than a village. Um, low income, uh, multicultured. You know, it, it seemed to be a, a high crime, gang violence area, shootings, stabbings, domestic incidents. Um, because of the multicultural, there was a lot of a lot of fighting amongst you know, the cultures or the, the generations. There were some people that were there from the beginning still, or residents, I should say, from the beginning still. And then um, it was predominantly changing over, so to speak. Let's, let's jump into the actual story. Um, tell me what kind of dispatch information you received when this call came over. They, uh, we receive our calls you know, over the radio. It's the, the same band as the police calls. So when they get a, a, a call for, a, you know, an alarm or a violent call or a robbery or something to that nature, we hear the same calls. We all we get dispatched to the same calls. Uh, I didn't hear the initial call that they had gotten for this address. Um, I, I learned later on that it was. Uh, well, we'll get into that in a minute, I guess. But I, I learned later on what it, what the original call was. Um, but I was actually standing in. Uh, the 7-Eleven, I had just gotten coffee. I was thumbing through a newspaper. They, uh, you know, radio had called me and, um, you know, said res- respond to assist these, the officers at the scene. Um, and they said, check your, your MDT, which is our mobile data terminal. Um, they said, check that for further information. So, okay. You know, so what, what could this possibly be? So, so I walked out to, you know, to my ambulance and, Sure enough, I checked the screen, and, and on the screen, the additional notes were uh, three dead children in the house. Pretty sure it, ex- it was exactly the way it was, the way I just said it. <laughs> Maybe a little different, but probably punched it right in the gut too. Yeah, you know, sometimes you 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 look at that, and you're like, all right, you know, is it is it really all that? Because we know a lot of times people call up, and you know what they tell you doesn't really add up to what it it is. You know, then sometimes. On the flip side, what they tell you doesn't really add up to what it is. 
<laughs> yeah, it's true. There's a lot of misinformation, uh, you know, coming from radio, and it's not their fault. It's not dispatch's fault. It's typically the the information that they get that they're relaying onto us, um, and it doesn't always equal accurate information. And and sometimes that creates, uh, you know, not just terrible situations like this one, but it creates some dangerous situations too. Right. Right. Yeah. Just the other day, they we had a they received a call for a, a fireplace out of control in a house. It wasn't a fireplace. It was an electric wire that burned up. <laughs> Well, that, totally. Different. I guess that that, that if you're going to be wrong, you might as well might as well be wrong on that side rather than uh, pull up and you have a whole house engulfed. Exactly. How how many uh, how many units were were assigned to this particular call? I'd have to guess and say at least two to three because I don't, I don't recall off the off the bat because obviously after the fact, uh, you know, more units showed up, more specialized units and, and uh, bureaus showed up, but initially it was at least two to three. Um. Generally, each car has one patrol officer. That area, there's two cars assigned to that area generally, and there's they're a two-person car. Um, so I don't recall. If, I, I just remember a few extra people being there, so I, I'd say at least two to three cars. So thinking back to when you arrived on scene, did anything jump out at you? N- nothing really jumped out at me. I mean, it, it was a typical uh, apartment-type building. The entrance was in the rear. Um you know, there was snow on the ground, you know, it was a bunch of offices, you know, for lack of a better term, milling around outside the driveway. When I walked up, I was met by one of the female officers. And then I can see the look on her face that something wasn't something wasn't right or what they actually put on the computer for me as additional information was was in fact correct. So as you as you walked into the residence, I'm, I'm assuming you you went to the building, you went upstairs into the into the apartment. Um, as you walked in, what were some of the things that you saw? Yeah, we we went around to the back of the apartment. Uh, I'm sorry, the back of the uh, the building went up the stairs, uh, second floor apartment, uh, which led us back to the front of the building. Just a lot of clutter, a lot of debris, from what I can remember. We get to the top of the stairs, and and then uh, we made a left, and they led me into the bedroom, and that's where I found the uh, the three children. But a lot of a lot of clutter, a lot of disarray, you know, very unkept. What what's the process like from there? What do you, what do you do in terms of assessment? In terms of size up? What are some of the things that you're doing at that point? Well, you know, now everything's starting to to come to fruition. You know, your your adrenaline is is. It's kind of there, but it's not there as opposed to like, you know, you're racing into, a, let's say, a, a gunshot or a stabbing or or fire. You know, you just you're going in trying to process everything. You know, this is more of a slow down thing. And, and as you as you as I was walking in, you know, it was almost like slow motion, you know, things like just slow down around you. So uh, as I walked in and, you know, they directed me to the bed and, you know, they they, they were laying all in the bed. They were lined up in. Age order, you know, youngest was an, was an infant all the way up to the uh, young uh, infant, toddler, then a child all lined up together. The, uh, the oldest had a, a traumatic injury to uh, the neck area. The other two didn't have any uh, obvious tra- traumatic injuries, but they obviously had, uh, you know, no signs of life. You know, there was some rigor mortis. Uh, and that was really, that was really it after that. There was no sense in, there's no point in moving them after that. Um, now you go into, it's a crime scene. So whatever I do from here on is going to disturb the crime scene. So as long as I had enough uh, information to pronounce them deceased or no longer not initiate CPR, that's as far as we go. 
and I'm assuming that they were laid on the bed by whoever perpetrated the crime. Yeah, it was later learned that the uh, the mother the mother in fact committed this. Um, she uh, she actually she did plead insanity and and was declared insane, if if that's the right term. Yeah, well, I, I think it, it certainly uh, it certainly fits. I mean, it's uh, a horrific situation, and I don't know how a, how a sane person could do that. So it it's, it feels like it fits. Tell me about some of the tell me about maybe some of the takeaways from from this call. You know, how is it? You know, I know when we talked initially, you said that something that stuck with you for a long time, and I think it's what is it? Is it fourteen coming up on fourteen years um, since this incident happened? Yeah, it was February twenty fourth, two thousand eight. It's it's certainly okay to talk about it and necessary. Um, one of the things that ha- well, I, a couple of things that happened from it. You, you know, when you walk around the apartment gathering clues and and stuff, because now you have to document, you know, what happened and and kind of paint the picture in your PCR, which is your pre-hospital care report, which goes on file with the state and your agency and the uh, medical examiner's office. Um. You know, I'm walking around trying to process all this stuff and, and the, the kitchen slash bed, bathroom, you know, the bathtub was half full of water. There were bottles of like liquid, like a pale, pale white liquid, like scattered throughout. The, it was kind of weird, you know, just like, what what is this stuff? So, you know, I don't know. If, I don't know what transpired before that, but, uh, you know, we learned later on what what the result of their death was. But. Uh, at the time, we didn't know. So it was all like, what is going on? It was just probably nothing I've ever seen before. You know, and even to this day, you know, you you go to suicides or or domestic incidences that result in fatalities. And it's nothing like like that scene. That's for sure. So we I called for another ambulance to transport the mother as a, you know, for a psych evaluation. And he showed up and he transported her. And, and then my supervisor showed up just because of the nature of the incident and he basically asked me, you know, is, uh, is your head screwed on or something like that? I mean, you know, this, this has just happened. So, I, you know, what am I supposed to say? Um, he wanted to pull me off the road and, and sit me into a medical control, but I didn't feel sitting there and dwelling on the thing for the rest of the day. This was early in the morning. So it would have been like the whole day just sitting there. And I was like, nah, that's not, nah, I'm just going to go back to work and do my thing. The other ambulance, actually, he came back to the scene he actually had a student with him because, you know, part of our job, we we have people from the academy, students from the academy that ride along for experience with us. So he pushed the student aside and grabbed me and, and uh, you know, we went off and talked for a, little, for a little bit, which was very helpful. Well, we've talked on this podcast about the cumulative effects of some of the things that we that we see. And I would imagine, you know, this is one of those incidents where, you know, it's 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 right there in your face. It's a, It's a big incident. It's something that. Um, it's, like you said, was addressed right away, you know, an offer to pull you off the road, another ambulance, another, another medic talking to you about it. Um, but what we, what we're, what we're discussing, um, with other providers is that the cumulative effects of the calls that we see is what, you know, really starts to kind of chip away at, at us. And I wonder how, you know, what your take on that is. I mean, one of the things that, that I found out the next day was the officers that responded, they were, I'm pretty sure they were mandated, you know, or forcefully told you're going for counseling. And that whole group, they went for counseling, spent the whole day talking to people and, you know, whatever, I, whatever they did, I don't, I don't really, I don't know, but I know they went for counseling. Uh, I was never called. I was never offered that. You know, I basically just talked to the other medic and, you know, that was that. Um, in takeaway, 
You know, it's important. It's important to be included in all that stuff. You know, when we work on the street with the police officers, we're all a team. You know, they get there first. They do the job. We pick up when they left along. We go back and forth. You know, now we were kind of separated from that. You know, and then kind of to be disregarded that, you know, well, you know, they're getting counseling and, you know, we, you know, you guys are on your own, so to speak. Nowadays, uh, I have a partner who, you know, I've been working with him for the last 20 years or so. He he was, he was assigned to his ambulance one year ahead of me. So, but we've been together for like, for the last 19, but I've known him forever. Uh, we feed off, off each other. So we're, we're our own we're each other's counselors, so to speak. And uh, yeah, you can imagine there's a lot of dark humor that goes on in there, but you know, it's, it's the way we cope. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's certainly necessary to, you know, to have that person to bounce things off of if you don't have the opportunity for counseling. I'm just curious if this call happened today, would you be part of that group that received counseling or would you still, you still think you'd be on your own? Um, I I think some things have changed. Uh, I, I think, the people that are involved in the counseling are, are more available um, and they're more attuned as, as to what goes on, you know, and, and so they, they make more of an effort to reach out to you. Uh, I know who I would reach out to. I know, you know, even some counselors that have retired, you know, they call it peer support. People that we worked with have since retired. I'd probably pick up the phone and call them, you know, just because I, I've known them and I'm comfortable with them and, and, you know, they, they understand. So it's a little, it's much different than it was back then, but, you know, it is important to, you know, at least talk to somebody, you know, cause these things can build up. And like you said, it becomes a pressure cooker and next thing you know, the top comes off and, and there's issues. Yeah. And I think we're seeing a lot more of that with, with first responders and, uh, you know, medics, EMTs, even police officers and firefighters, um, are really starting to see the effects of that long-term cumulative stress. So, so going back to the going back to the call, I know you said the uh, the woman pled insanity. You know where where is she now? Um, does it does it ever come up? Do you guys ever talk about it? Uh, I I don't know where she is now. I, you know where wherever she was committed to it doesn't really come up usually. You know, once in a while it will. There's uh, again going back on my partner. There's a couple of dates that stick out. <laughs> you know, some good, some bad. Some want to strangle them, and some we look at and go, "Wow, we got through that one." <laughs> but uh, you know, this is one of them. Uh, and once in a while we just, we chat about it, but nothing, nothing crazy. Um, early on, you know, when my kids were little, you know, that's when things would kind of, every once in a while I get like a little flashback, you know, I'd walk in to check on them and, you know, I would shake them to, you know, see if they move because they, well, you look down, they're sleeping and I'd get that vision of, of those three sleeping in their bed too. So, but yeah, you know, I mean, they're all older now, so it's a little, it's a little different. It's funny how, uh, having kids changes us as, uh, as providers. Oh yeah. Yep. Rob, anything else you want to add? Yeah. It, listen, it's, it's, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be, uh, to ask questions. It's okay to reach out to people and, and talk to them, you know, going through your career, you know, who you can talk to, you know, who you feel comfortable talking to, you know, they don't have to be trained, you know, as long as somebody's just sitting there and wants to listen, that's certainly, uh, appropriate. And again, you know, everybody should be offered the support when it's necessary, not just, you know, one group and not the other group, you know, and, and supervisors need to be in, in tune to that, which, like I said, they've gotten better. Things have changed over the years. But, you know, back then it was it was different. Rob, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking about this call. And I hope you'll come back and talk about another one. I appreciate it. Thank you. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this or other podcasts we're producing, please visit browndogsmedia.com. Thank you for listening.